You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Each week we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Coming up next on SpyCast. This is a completely different sort of concept in military strategy, but it was also completely dependent on really good intelligence. So when you look back at 1940 and you see that Norway, Denmark, uh, the Netherlands, Belgium and France were occupied in an astonishing speed. So the Germans were ruthless. They had really good intelligence on all the bridges. They knew exactly what had to be captured in advance. Nigel West has been called the expert's expert on intelligence history. He is the author of dozens of books on the subject, including a recent two-part history of the Abwehr, the German military intelligence service that enabled and then plotted against the Führer Adolf Hitler. Nigel West is the pen name of Rupert Allison, a former member of parliament in the United Kingdom between 1987 and 1997. In the rest of this episode, Nigel and I discuss who's who in German intelligence during World War II, how Nazi were the respective agencies, how well did German intelligence perform during the war, the 20th of July plot and Operation Valkyrie, and the extent of British involvement in that plot to assassinate the Führer. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends and loved ones. Please consider supporting us for free by leaving us a five-star review. If you have additional feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast.spymuseum.org. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006. We are imitated, but never intimidated. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Well, as I mentioned before we went on air, I'm, I'm really excited to speak to you, Nigel. And I'm really interested in your two books. So one came out last year on the, the period of the Abwehr uh, up until 1943. And then the second volume is 43 to 45. So I think just to take it back to the beginning, for listeners that are not up to speed with this, can you just give them a pen portrait of the Abwehr? The German intelligence service... Uh, started in in strange circumstances in 1932 uh, as a clandestine organization because it was banned by the Treaty of Versailles. The Abwehr was unlike any other intelligence agency in the world because it was based on the 24 or 25 military districts in Germany. So it was a, a secret branch of the regular army in Germany. And because they were not collecting in domestic intelligence and they were concentrating obviously on overseas targets, particular military districts concentrated on particular targets. So, for example, Hamburg being a port city and being the destination, the, the, the terminus, if you like, for transatlantic voyages to the United States and voyages to London, uh, 
concentrated the Abwehrstellen, which was like the station base in Hamburg, took over Bremen, not as another Stalin, but as a, a nest, as a sub-base organization. And they recruited seamen. And the idea was that in the event of war, they would not only have created networks in the United States and the United Kingdom, but in order not to be reliant on wireless, they had a network of couriers. And so all of the couriers were tradespeople on the ships, members of the crew, hairdressers particularly, waiters. And so these were people who were doing double duties. They were members of the crew of some of the big German transatlantic companies. But the ships also provided an opportunity for the Abwehr to communicate with uh, networks overseas. And that's how they developed. So Wiesbaden would concentrate uh, on France and another military district would concentrate uh, on Belgium and, and Holland and Denmark and so on. And so this was a very unusual way to construct an intelligence agency. So that made them remarkable. And we in the West, uh, the Western Allies, had very little knowledge of the Abwehr or its structure or its personalities, really until about 1941, which is really strange. So the Germans knew a great deal about American intelligence, the FBI, British intelligence, knew some of the personalities, but we knew absolutely nothing. In fact, we weren't entirely certain about who Admiral Canaris was, who, of course, was the chief, the second chief of the Abwehr. And clarify for me when the Abwehr comes into being. Is it, is it in the 20s, 1921, or is it in uh, the 30s and 1932? Well, it was really in the 1930s that it got underway uh, entirely. There was an earlier organization, but, but of course, being banned by the Treaty of Versailles, it had no opportunity for funding, no opportunity for agents, and it really wasn't until about 1933 that the West started to see evidence of German espionage, particularly in the target countries of France, Belgium, Holland, and uh, the United Kingdom. Those are the, the principal target countries for the Abwehr at that time. So it's really, really interesting the way that organically different intelligence services come into being and then if as you said if you were to start from scratch maybe it would look very different but by that point there's lots of institutions and structures and processes for our listeners can you just give them a sense of the intelligence landscape in germany i think that the wehrmacht had embarked upon this new policy of instant very fast war. So rather than repeat the static confrontation of the First World War, the Wehrmacht in the mid-1930s had developed this new strategy of moving armor very fast ahead, coordinated with ground attack aircraft, uh, infantry being mechanized, And then the other dimension to it, of course, was communications, very fast radio communications between air and ground and infantry. And what made all of this very different was that the strategy was to race ahead and to capture key objectives. And if there were any strong points that uh, were going to be resistant, instead of waiting to deal with them, mop them up. They would just bypass them, leave them isolated in the rear and allow them to be dealt with at a later stage. This was a completely different sort of concept in military strategy, but it was also completely dependent on really good intelligence. So when you look back at 1940 and you see that Norway, Denmark, uh, the Netherlands, Belgium and France were occupied in an astonishing speed. I mean, really, with breathtaking what took place, especially considering that some of those countries, uh, Holland and, and Belgium, were neutral. So the Germans were ruthless. They had really good intelligence on all the bridges. They knew exactly what had to be captured in advance. 
the bridges would then be held so as to allow the tanks over, and the tanks wouldn't wait to attack strong points. They would just go directly ahead in order to get achieve their objectives. And this being dependent on intelligence meant that the Abwehr did an enormous amount of work in 1938, 1939, and 1940, collecting information that was of direct relevance and advantage to the troops on the ground. And again, this was revolutionary. And within Germany, there was great admiration and understanding and acceptance that Blitzkrieg could only work with good intelligence. And therefore, the Abwehr had a status far beyond the other organizations, the Sicker Heinstdienst, which was in effect the Nazi Party's intelligence organization, which was very effective in its own field and part of the overall Nazi political structure was, of course, feared Gestapo. I don't want to say that the Germans have had a bad press <laughs> in relation to intelligence operations in the Second World War, but they were very effective. And when you look at the staffing of the Gestapo in particular, they were mainly professional policemen who had been recruited into the Gestapo for the war. The Gestapo was a very small organization prior to the war. And, uh, of course, we now know about the concentration camps and we know about the death camps. Uh, but at that time, we had very little understanding of that. And there was friction between the Sikkerheinsdienst and their political status and the Abwehr, which was more straightforward intelligence, divided into Abwehr 1, which was intelligence collection, Abwehr 2, which was sabotage, and Abwehr 3, which was counter-espionage. And the Abwehr was a very large organization. You're talking about 60,000 staff who operated in circumstances that were really unknown in the UK or the US. And, and that's what intrigued me, because I found all these post-war reports of the structure and the, the work, the operations of the Abwehr. And this had not really been appreciated until about 1941, when we got our first defector. And at that stage, our understanding of the Abwehr was almost entirely based on signals intelligence. Just when you were talking there about the change to for warfare uh, for the Second World War. Whenever I think of that, I always think of two things. One is a bit more refined and one is a bit more prosaic. But the first thing that I think about is Guderian's quote, not a drizzle, but a downpour. Don't spread the tanks out, keep them all concentrated. And then the second thing that I think of is Dad's Army, the TV show back in the UK where... They say to Captain Mannering, the Germans are, are in France and Captain Mannering says, don't worry, they'll never get through the marginal line and the response is, well, they went around it and Captain Mannering is saying, you see what we're up against, Germans with their damn dirty tricks. You know, they're, not, they're not playing by the rules. <laughs> so you mentioned the numbers there, so tell me if I'm wrong here. I got around like a dozen people in 1921 in the the proto-Abwehr organization, and then going into the war or approaching the war, it's 150 people, but then in the war it goes up to 60,000. Could you correct me on the figures there? What's the growth of the Abwehr like? When does it begin to pick up and when does it go up through the roof? Well, there was, there was no planning for, for the expansion of the Abwehr. I think that the German success in 1940 took the Germans by as as much surprise as anybody else. And there is a huge amount of evidence for that. For example, the Germans had no long-range submarines, no long-range U-boats in 1939 and 1940 because they had no prospect of running U-boat operations outside of the Baltic, which is shallow water, so they were not ocean-going. They were small uh, diesel electrics that they depended upon. In 1940, to their amazement, the French collapse and they suddenly find themselves 
with four U-boat bases on the west coast of France, at Lorient and so on. And this opens up the opportunity for the Kriegsmarine to run U-boat operate, which they'd never anticipated, never planned for, U-boat operations into the Atlantic. And as a consequence of that, they had to redesign or create new U-boats, which were ocean-going. And uh, those ocean-going U-boats became the backbone of the Kriegsmarine submarine fleet. But it, it demonstrates that uh, in terms of strategy, the Germans never anticipated uh, having ports on the west coast uh, of France, on the Atlantic coast. And help us understand, so the Abwehr, it's a human intelligence organization, is that correct? It's a human intelligence organization, uh, but it depended quite largely on signals intelligence. So in the military sphere, in retrospect, we can say that the Germans relied primarily on signals intelligence, which was extremely good. And we know now from, for example, the TICOM declassified uh, files, the scale of German success. So they were very good at visiting wrecks. So in the first months of the war, when three submarines were sunk in the Haligo Bight, they were visited by divers and Royal Naval crypto equipment was recovered from the submarines. Uh, crypto equipment was recovered from destroyers that uh, had been sunk in the Norwegian campaign. So they had very good understanding of cipher systems that were used by the Royal Navy, and subsequently they were able to collect cipher equipment relating to Anglo-American naval operations in the North Atlantic, and they exploited that very successfully. And the structure of the Abwehr was primarily intelligence analysis, so that was Group 1. But that was dependent on building intelligence on a, a signals intelligence matrix. And then uh, Abwehr 2 was sabotage and Abwehr 3 was, was counter-espionage. And in all of those fields, they were really very successful. Abwehr 2, for instance, collected hundreds of tons of allied material, explosives, time pencils, uh, other equipment to be used, partly because the quality was better than the German equivalent, but also because they wanted to be able to full, run false flag operations. And if they were to use sabotage equipment in particularly the Iberian Peninsula, it would be the Allies that would get the blame for it because it was their kit that was being used. And then the, the third area of in, intelligence operations conducted by the Abwehr is counter-espionage, where they were sensationally successful. So they virtually ran for two and a half years the French resistance in France. Uh, they were in control of the air movements. They ran between 1941 and 1943. They ran virtually all the SOE uh, networks. The same for, uh, to some extent, the SIS networks, intelligence collection networks in Western France, they were all compromised and penetrated by uh, Abwehr 3. So that was the Abwehr in France. The Abwehr in Belgium, France and Switzerland was hugely successful against the GRU, against the Soviet network that was there that came to be called Rota Capelli, the Red Chapel. And that was um, an investigation conducted jointly by the Sicker Heinsdienst and the Abwehr together. And that totally destroyed the, the GRU organization that, that, had its, that had some of its tentacles in Germany. And that was completely wound up by the Abwehr, a very impressive operation that to this day is the basis of Anglo-American anti-Soviet uh, and anti-Russian counter-espionage operations. 
Nigel mentions int a few times in this episode. That's the plural of int, I-N-T, which is short for intelligence. So what are they and why do they matter? Close your eyes, ideally not when you're driving, and think about what's around you. Sights, sounds and smells, solids, liquids and gases, atoms, hadrons and quarks. In a word, phenomena. A lot of phenomena in the world around us, or let's just call it stuff, can help intelligence agencies build up a picture of the world. Think of the recent Chinese balloon, for example, as an intelligence platform. It would be able to see stuff, landscapes, military sites, critical infrastructure, or what is called imminent for imagery intelligence. It would be able to hear stuff. This could be communications between people and text and speech, or it could be electronic signals such as radio waves or electromagnetic pulses. This is called SIGINT for signals intelligence. It could also sense or smell stuff. This could be radiation, chemical or biological signatures, how hot or cold something is. This is called MASINT, or Measurements and Signature Intelligence. Imint, SIGINT and MASINT may also be able to see, hear and sense things that we cannot see, hear or sense. Things that are simply beyond the human sensory experience. For example, human beings can only see a tiny 0.0035% of the electromagnetic spectrum. They can't see things, for example, like x-rays or microwaves. These are only a few of the ints. James Bond, for example, is an example of human or human intelligence because he gathers information by means of interpersonal contact. I am simplifying here, of course, but essentially the ints are a way to categorise and analyse the phenomena or stuff that is all around us. Okay, you can open your eyes again. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. What I picked up was it's quite astonishing this worldwide logistics network that they had and then in the occupied countries as well had extremely effective operations in place and I think it's just interesting because so much of what people think about the Abwehr as the victor's view of their vanquished foes in a lot of intelligence history it's the Germans the they were good at some things and they could invent machines. View from conventional wartime historians, really from David Kahn to the present day, is that the Germans, the German intelligence services were incompetent, that they were, uh, it was nepotism, that they were corrupt, that they didn't recognize double agents, um, which is really very far from the truth. The, the organizations were very impressive, particularly uh, run from Istanbul. And when you consider that the Axis did have some pretty significant disadvantages when the Allies controlled the Suez Canal and had an empire global reach, uh, the Germans had no such advantages when they started off. And so they were dependent on the Kriegsorganization in Istanbul to cover the whole of the Near East and the Middle East, a huge territory uh, stretching to Afghanistan. And you've just got in Europe the 
Krieg's organizations in Lisbon and Madrid. Uh, and yet, they achieved so much uh, from that. And I think that it's a big mistake that uh, historians hitherto have made in denigrating the professionalism uh, of these officers. And it doesn't matter where you look, in every area we have been misled. The, the proposition that we ran all the German agents in England through the double-cross system is somewhat exaggerated. We now know that there were German spies who operated in the United Kingdom uh, that were not caught, were never even detected. I mean, one of them, a Dutch exotic animal dealer, operated in the United Kingdom, was visit, came visited backwards and forwards, was never even a suspect. And after the war, he was prosecuted in his native Holland and was acquitted, uh, incidentally. So the officers who were handling some of the agents who they recognized were dodgy and turned out to be double agents, they were very aware, they were conscious of the, the danger of double agents, and they were also very aware of the potential compromise of their communications. And I often hear historians saying, of course, the Allies had this huge advantage because they broke Enigma. But the truth is that if you look at the TICOM reports uh, developed at the, right at the end of the war and, and after the war, the Germans recognized that Enigma was vulnerable. They broke the Enigma keys being used by the Swiss army, so they were very aware of the shortcomings. But it was so convenient that they continued to use Enigma, mainly because they believed that it would take years to, uh, to concentrate the resources required to, to break certain keys, whereas in reality, we were able to read certainly the hand cipher traffic in Spain very quickly, and then the machine cipher traffic uh, followed it later in 1940. And that gave us an enormous advantage. Why do you think that this has been the case? Why have the narratives always been self-congratulatory or, or triumphalist or denigrating the Germans? Is it just because historians lean into where they think books are going to be sold? If you say maybe you weren't that smart, it's maybe not a good way to shift books, or are people just not doing enough research in the German archives? The information wasn't available. It wasn't available. Uh, the Abwehr archives uh, and records were largely destroyed. The Germans were pretty efficient at destroying things, and they eliminated a very large amount of their own records. The German foreign ministry records we discovered buried uh, in a forest. Some of the uh, post-Normandy Western Front intelligence daily reports and war diaries were recovered from one of the historians who had been drafting the daily reports. He buried all of this material at the bottom of his garden in Remagen and then surrendered them to the Americans who promptly classified it all, took it to America and never allowed anybody to see it. And it's really only been in the last five years that we've been able to look at the records and that involves about 6,500 files that MI5 has released to the National Archives at Kew. That is a consequence of two directors general of the security service having been Cambridge history graduates. Rather than burn their files, they understood the value of declassifying them, maybe redacting some of them, uh, but putting them through a declassification process and making them available at queue. So that has been uh, a gift. The other thing is that MI5 in particular was in a state of perpetual surprise about the Abwehr. It wasn't until November 1941 that we got our first defector. And he was a defector really in the sense that he was captured uh, in, uh, on the Tunisian frontier in November 1941. And uh, while he was a prisoner, he indicated his willingness, first of all, to disclose his identity 
and secondly, to cooperate with the Allies. And so it wasn't until actually January 1942 that he was uh, debriefed in, in England. His code name was Harlequin, and his real name was Richard Verman. You won't find Richard Verman's name in any of the uh, conventional histories of the Second World War, but he was enormously important. Why? Because he was able to confirm the intercepts that had been monitored by the British of uh, German communications. He was able to reveal the true names, the cover names, and the code names of the personalities in that wireless traffic that had been intercepted by the British. So the British had this huge resource of intercepts, but the intercepts were protected by these cover names and code names, and you needed an insider to explain who these people were. And Richard Verman was the, the first person to do that. And so MI5 began to realize that they had a foundation, an intelligence foundation on which they could build a, a complete order of battle, a grasp, and a wiring diagram of, the, of their principal adversary, the Abwehr. And from that moment, when MI5 got the confidence to run double agents more aggressively, uh, to get more information about Abwehr personalities, they then, of course, naturally attracted more defectors. It's quite interesting the way that you build up the picture in the book using radio traffic, uh, interrogation reports, defectors, captured documents. It's, it's very interesting the way that you build the picture up. These, these are all pieces of the intelligence jigsaw that fit together and where they overlap, you've got this source validation, which is so valuable. But our primary source really was what we codenamed ISK and ISOS, which were the machine and hand ciphers of the Abwehr. And that was the first traffic to be broken long before the Luftwaffe or the Kriegsmarine traffic was read. It was the Abwehr traffic that, that was so vulnerable. And MI5, once they got the confidence towards the end of 1944, that they had a real understanding and grasp of the, of the radio network and, uh, radio network and all the uh, personalities involved, they then moved on to uh, starting writing reports to try and take control of these organizations. Uh, and that became evident at the end of the war. And it's only now that we're being able to read those post-hostilities reports of taken on the basis of interrogations and interviews conducted by selected personalities from each Abwehrstelen and Krieg's organization. And those were conducted either by the counterintelligence corps in U.S. Army areas or uh, special units that were created by MI5 and SIS in the 21st Army Group areas in Northwest Europe. And none of this material has been available, uh, and really, and for free and online until COVID. Wow. Just very briefly for our listeners, you mentioned code names and cover names. Can you tell them the difference? Uh, yes. Code names um, will be either operations or individuals, and cover names will be applied to, to particular personalities, and they will only be temporary. So Richard Verman revealed to us that uh, somebody called, called Jack will... Six months later, he will have become Irvin, uh, whereas his real name would have been Herman. And so, uh, and he may have had an operational code name for whatever enterprise he was engaged in. So, if you are the monitor, uh, if you are uh, following the Abwehr traffic, you will see uh, particular messages. Uh, relating to all of those names. And the important thing is to try and, I, once you realize that they're all the same person, to get the, the three code names, code, code names, cover names, and real names together. And then you can identify who they are and where uh, they've been. And it was Vermin 
who who explained from the inside how that system worked. And there were cryptographers and cryptanalysts on the allied side that suspected that that was the case. Um, and once they had the, the confirmation from the defector, Harlequin, they were then able to conduct their interrogations far more effectively. So I want to get on to some of the personalities, the operations and the 20th of July plot, but it might be interesting just now just to give us your assessment of the relative performances of the intelligence services of, of Germany and the Allies, because we've heard so much of everything that the Allies done right, Double Cross, the D-Day deception, the cracking enigma, of course, uh, and you're correcting the record, trying to readjust the scores, if you want to put it like that. Everything changed in 1941, and, and prior to 1941, the British had had the huge advantage of being an island, uh, but they had a very significant disadvantage which had manifested itself all the way through the 1930s, and that was an in inability to run double agents. So if you're going to run a double agent case, there are two things that you've got to do. Firstly, you've got to supply real information to the double agent so that he retains the interest of his uh, employers. And secondly, that his information is good enough to persuade his employers not to send a replacement agent to the United Kingdom. So a double agent has these two requirements, and that requirement is always a problem for an, the intelligence community to go to the armed services and to say, give us genuine secrets that you don't mind us passing to the adversary. Well, of course, that's just not going to happen. But it did in 1940, when the Double Cross Committee was established in the United Kingdom. And this was a liaison relationship at a very senior level, at directors of intelligence level, where uh, double agents could be cleared to receive quite sensitive information selectively and to be allowed to pass that to the enemy. And the most successful double agent at that time, the earliest, was, of course, Renato Levy, who was codenamed Cheese, who was uh, an Italian Jew, but a British passport holder, who worked as a spy for the French, the Germans, and the Italians. <laughs> now, Cheese was a terrific character, and he was the very first effective double agent because he was sent by the Germans to rebuild Abwehr networks in Egypt during uh, the early part of the Second World War. And when he was there, the task that was given to him by the commander, Allied Commander-in-Chief was to exaggerate and to promote Allied strengths right across the Middle East. So Cheese was on the radio very quickly as soon as he arrived in Cairo, and was describing what he saw and exaggerated the strengths of the Allies right across the, the Middle East and provided the, the Germans with an entire order, order of battle, which they accepted. And that became the very first evidence of strategic deception in the Second World War, and it showed that a double agent could materially interfere with and affect the enemy's assessment of uh, the order of battle uh, right across the Middle East. And Renato Levy was the longest-running double agent during the Second World War. But what made him so effective was that uh, the, the Germans always believed him, and that became the basis of strategic deception that was then exploited uh, for the Normandy landings in 1944. And it was the head of deception in the Middle East who had invented the concept of cheese and manipulated Renato Levy, who was invited to go to London in 1943 to supervise Fortitude, which was the deception campaign which we all know about uh, that was so successful for the D-Day landings. I'm just being playful here, but 
let's just say that I bear the mark that it was giving the history that has been written was a C minus or something like that. Where would you put it at now, based on all the documentation that you found? Oh, I, I think. What's the reassessment like? I think that the the Abwehr would get B plus uh, plus. I think that uh, to be fair to the security service, uh, you would give them A plus plus because a very small number of case officers and a very small number of analysts were able effectively to control all of these double agents. The problem was that the Germans uh, took account of some of their double agents, but they were quite, discriminate, uh, quite discriminating because they believed them to be genuine agents. But quite a few of them they thought were a bit dodgy and did not give them the credit that MI5 thought that they had during the war. So when Sir John Masterman wrote his draft account of the double agent operations in 1945... There is an element of exaggeration about saying that the British took total control over the German intelligence service. Uh, we didn't. But in terms of agent operations, we were, we were pretty successful. Uh, and we also were very good at deception campaigns, which the Abwehr had no real capacity for. Uh, in Abwehr Group 3, there was uh, 3D was a deception unit, but it was very much on a tactical level that would respond to the requirements of the, uh, the German high command. So just to summarize where we are just now, so we have the Abwehr B++, uh, very underrated traditionally, but a lot of new documentation has come out that uh, is allowing us, or you specifically, to reappraise it. It was human, but there were other ints built into the, that enterprise, and it was part of the Oberkommando Wehrmacht, so it was German military intelligence, whereas the SD was Nazi party a Nazi party intelligence apparatus. So I just want to talk about the evolution of this as we go into the war. So one of the things that I was thinking when I was reading your book was, you know, you have this argument, Omer Bartov, Hitler's army, or it's the other side is made by Guderian and his his uh, books. We were just the German army. We, we just followed orders. And Omer Bartov says... Mm, that's BS for want of a better term. This was Hitler's army, it wasn't separated off. So it almost seems a little bit like with the Abwehr, some sources that I've read are, you know, anti-Nazi, but they were still trying to help Germany win the war. And then other sources I've read have said that they were anti-Nazi, but they were actually helping the Allies so that Germany would lose the war. So you know more about this than probably all of those sources. So what's going on with the Abwehr here? How how much were they helping the Allies, if at all? Uh, how much of this was based on anti-Nazism? How much were they just a traditional German military instrument? How Nazified were they? Which I, I think I know the answer already, but just help our listeners understand a little bit more about the Abwehr as the war goes on and the army begins to lose and the Nazi elements of the regime take on more power and responsibility. So just sketch a picture of that for our listeners. I think the conventional view is that the Abwehr was uh, wholly uh, anti-Nazi, anti-regime, pro-allies. And, and that's not what emerges from the documents that I've seen. The, the interrogation reports at the end of the war showed that when the tide of war changed in 1942-1943, that uh, it became evident to the Abwehr more than to anybody else that the war could not be won. And I saw very little evidence of any kind of collaboration between the Abwehr and the Allies uh, except in two areas. 
Uh, the first was the relatively famous story now of Helena Szymanska. She was Canaris's mistress. She was, she'd been married to the Polish military attaché in Berlin before the war. And they had developed a relationship, and he, Canaris, established her in Bern in Switzerland with her four beautiful daughters. And he would visit her or arrange a rendezvous with her in Italy. Uh, I interviewed Helena Szymanska, and it, it was very clear that Canaris knew that she was in touch with the Allies. So she was run by, principally by the Polish intelligence service in Switzerland during the war, but actually they were acting as surrogates for the secret intelligence service, and she had an SIS handler, uh, Andrew King, who I also interviewed. And so that link was a conduit uh, where Canaris passed information to Helena Szymanska, knowing that that was going straight to the Allies. There was no direct uh, link. She acted as a sort of cutout, an intermediary, uh, and that is uh, isolated and relatively limited. Uh, he, for example, passed information about Barbarossa, warned the Allies of, an in, of uh, German plans to attack the Soviet Union. The second area, which I think is much more interesting is the direct connection between the Abwehr and the 20th of July plot and the Allies. How much did the Allies know? What was the British involvement in the 20th of July plot? And what is the evidence for any of this? And, and this is really, I think, the nub of the issue. And it turns out that Jörg Hansen, who was... Uh, Canaris's deputy uh, was the principal plotter and that he sent three emissaries to Stockholm, Madrid and to Bern to make contact with the Allies in order to reach an accommodation. And the deal was going to be uh, removal of Hitler, replacement of the Nazi regime with a monarchist constitution based on the British system uh, and uh, then coming to some kind of arrangement or accommodation with dealing with the Soviets. But the really interesting connection is uh, Otto Yon, who was a, uh, an Abwehr officer and agent, so Abwehr asset, and more significantly, he was the Lufthansa lawyer who was responsible for, uh, in modern parlance, uh, negotiating landing slots for civilian aircraft across Western Europe, and in particular, the Lufthansa regular civilian flights into Madrid. And that gave Otto Yon contact with the West, uh, acting as a surrogate for... Uh, Jörg Hansen. Now, why is this important? Because Otto Jön played a key role in the 20th of July plot, survived the aftermath. He hid in his apartment for three days. His, his brother was arrested by the Gestapo and executed. He managed to get himself out to Madrid uh, and then was made, made contact with SIS, for whom he had acted as an agent for the past two years, and then uh, SIX exfiltrated him to Lisbon and then took him back to London. Now, how do we know all of this? When he arrived in London, the convention, the protocol, is that SIS agents have to be screened by MI5. And uh, I've got and read the 16-page report written by MI5 based on their screening at, and interviews with Otto Yon when SIS delivered him to London. And it, it is very clear that he is an SIS asset. It says explicitly that he has been an SIS agent for the past two years, having been recruited in Madrid in 1942. And why should we believe this document? The answer is that the MI5 officer who wrote it was a man called Herbert Hart, better known to graduates of Oxford 
subsequently as Professor H.L.A. Hart, who was Professor of Jurisprudence at Oxford University for more than 25 years. So he wasn't some run-of-the-mill minor uh, MI5 officer who exaggerated for the reports. This was H.L.A. Hart, who was assigned the task of investigating Otto Yohn. And he sets out very clearly that Otto Yohn was the key conspirator. So uh, Jörg Hansen, of course, uh, perished in the aftermath of the 20th of July plot, but his son uh, survived and I interviewed him at length. So you might well say, why don't we know about Otto Yohn if he played this key role and if SIS was demonstrably involved in the 20th of July plot? Uh, why didn't we know this before? Why isn't it in the official history of MI6? And the answer is that Otto Yohn remained in the United Kingdom at the end of the war, went back to Germany, where he was not exactly greeted as a hero, even though he had been anti-Nazi. And in this is the really important point. In 1950, when the Allies were asked to nominate personnel for the new German Federal Security Service in Cologne, the new chief recommended by the British was, guess who, Otto Yohn. We, uh, the Secret Intelligence Service, has a long history of not disclosing or compromising the identities of its agents, and that's why Otto Yohn's name appears nowhere in the official history. So Otto Yohn was involved in the 20th of July plot. Uh, Jörg Hansen was involved in, in the 20th of July plot. And most of the other Abwehr officers were quickly identified uh, as being involved in the plot. Why? Because the uh, Abwehr headquarters had been bombed out in the Wilhelmstrasse in Berlin in 1942 and had moved to a secret site at Zossen, which is south of Berlin, in, uh, concealed in underground bunkers. But that site, a codename Zeppelin, appeared in a lot of the uh, allied wiring diagrams of their communications network across Western Europe. And Zossen, obviously, was, was Zeppelin, and they were, the Allies were able to identify that. Peter Schlegen was another Abwehr defector who had visited Zossen, and he gave uh, a diagram, which I reproduce in the book, uh, of the Zeppelin structure, and that was bombed by the RAF. So the Abwehr then moved again. Very few people knew this, but they moved to another site, not far from Zeppelin, which they codenamed Belinde. And Belinde was a mystery site. We could listen to the traffic from Belinde, but this is where the Abwehr plotted the 20th of July plot. And it turns out to be uh, the Schloss Beirut. And uh, the Schloss Beirut was a large estate, 40,000 acres, south of uh, Berlin, with its own railway station on the estate, owned by a Prussian nobleman called Prince Frederick uh, Zolms Beirut. And he arranged... The, the meetings prior to the 20th of July plot. Klaus von Stauffenberg, who you will recall was the, the potential assassin to kill Hitler, was his cousin. And it was Prince Frederick who arranged for uh, the plan to be given to the Allies of a restoration of the monarchy uh, in Germany. And, of course, all of that fell apart when the Abwehr officers at the Schloss Beirut, took over the entire complex on the 20th of July. But at midnight, Hitler broadcast that he was still alive, and the Sekerheinsdienst uh, officers who were also on the site, uh, who had been disarmed by the Abwehr, then took control of the Schloss Beirut. And the rest, as they say, is history. Prince Frederick lost the entire estate, was confiscated. Uh, he escaped with his life and that of his family uh, and I'm in touch with his grandson but uh, this is a dimension to Valkyrie this is a dimension to the 20th of July plot 
that nobody has ever really been able to uncover before. Nigel was responsible for uncovering the identity of one of the most famous spies of World War II, codenamed Garbo. Juan Pajol offered his services to the British to, quote, do something for the good of humanity, close quotes. He acquired a loathing of extremism during the civil war in his native Spain, but the British turned him down. Undeterred, he offered his services to the Germans, and the Abwehr gave him some training in the tradecraft of espionage. His mission, go to London and recruit a spy ring to serve the Reich. What did Pujol do? <laughs> he moved to Lisbon, Portugal, and used the public library and newsreel reports to imaginatively create intelligence reports coming from London. He invented a fictitious network of spies across Britain, giving each an imaginary character and personality, misleading the Germans all over the place. He occasionally erred since he had never been there, however. For example, he said that Glaswegians would do anything for a litre of wine. Clearly ignorant of 1940s drinking culture in my home city. Plus, Britain didn't adopt the metric system, litres, until 1965. Nevertheless, he's been called one of the most successful double agents of World War II, and Nigel found out that he'd faked his own death in Angola before moving to Venezuela, where he lived a quiet life as a bookseller. One of the things I love about spy stories is that they are more fantastical than fiction. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Wow. I want to dig into that a little bit more because it's so consequential and it's such a bombshell, I guess. But just before I get there, Otto John is a, a very interesting figure. So he goes back to Germany, uh, West Germany. He becomes the head of the Domestic Intelligence Agency. And then, as I understand it, on the 10th anniversary of the 20th of July plot, he goes missing. He turns up a couple of days later, I think, in East Berlin, talking about the disgrace that former Nazis like uh, Galen have been given positions of high office. He's interrogated by the KGB for several months. Then he mysteriously pops up again in West Germany. <laughs> you couldn't make this up. Uh, what's your take on that? Did the KGB abduct him, like he said? Because he spent the rest of his life trying to exonerate himself. But what's your take on this? Do you think that he what, had a breakdown? I mean, it seems a bit of a coincidence that it's the 10th anniversary of the plot that he goes missing. I have not investigated uh, the post-war uh, activities of Otto Jürgen. They're very complicated. Uh, I, I, th I think the issues of his motivation... Uh, of what he did, why he did it, uh, are very complex. And it, he was imprisoned when he came back to uh, to the Federal Republic, served his prison sentence, uh, and, and yes, tried to clear his name and never succeeded in doing so. So the Abwehr, you mentioned that they plotted the 20th of July attempt to kill Hitler at Berlin. 
So I'm just wondering how much were the Abwehr driving the plot? I guess my Completely. I guess my assumption was that it was all you know the other names that you hear of Stauffenberg, Ulbricht, Beck, were they marching to the beat of the Abwehr's drum or what yes, like what was the relationship the, the, like between them? They were all them? personal friends of Prince Frederick. The meetings to 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 plot the the nitty-gritty details of the assassination were conducted on horseback. They uh, so the Abwehr took over the, the Schloss Beirut uh, and used the uh, radio um, call sign Belinde, which we were able to listen to. Although we didn't know where Belinde was at that time, we could, do, we could take direction-finding uh, uh, analysis, uh, and we knew that it was south of Berlin, but nobody actually knew that it was the Schloss Beirut. So the the Girdler, uh, Beck, uh, the other plotters were all known to Prince Frederick. He was the common denominator, and they would go riding on the estate. So the plotters would uh, have their meeting on horseback and with no chance, a huge estate to ride around in. And uh the Prince Frederick's children were the cover, three children, or were also attended these meetings, but a hundred yards back behind uh, the, the plotters. So they were out of earshot. They couldn't hear what was being said. But more to the point, nor could anybody else. There, was, there weren't any microphones in, in the forest. Um, there was no chance of the Sicker Heinzdienst or anybody loyal to the regime in the Abwehr uh, eavesdropping on the conversations. So this was uh, perfect. It was the estate was close to Berlin. There was a daily bus service for the Abwehr to go into the center of Berlin. The railway station was on the site and the Regensdorf airfield where Klaus von Stauffenberg uh, flew to uh, the... Uh, Führer's Wolf's Lair in, in Poland w was again close by. I mean, really sadly, one of the, the, the tragedies of, of life in England at the moment is that the British Secret Intelligence Service will not willingly declassify or release any file ever at all. And their proud boast, and there is an operational reason for this, it's good for business to be able to say to an agent, we have never disclosed the identity of an agent. We will never declassify and release information that would compromise you, your children, or your grandchildren. And in some parts of the world, that, that counts for, for a great deal. So there are no SIS files. The Otto Yon file, I would love <laughs> to see, and I've spoken to the current chief of SIS, Richard Moore, and asked him uh, to declassify it. And he is an advocate of greater openness in today's world where we need the support of the public in the counterterrorism role. Uh, he is going to consider a submission uh, to allow in certain important historical cases for files to be released. So all we can rely on is the MI5 side of the story, and that's why, that's all that I could do was to go to the Hart report, Herbert Hart's uh, analysis, 16-page report, uh, which was based on interviews with Otto Yon in order to clear him to be able to settle in the United Kingdom in, in October 1944. And that's the best we can do. One other person I just wanted to touch on was... Oster, the the deputy head of the Abwehr, he's a really fascinating figure as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about him? Yes, Hans Oster um, was a, a very interesting character, and I think we can we can reasonably say was the, the principal organizer of the twentieth of July plot, uh, along with Jörg Hansen. Uh, it it's very difficult to see the area where, or the moment that he sort of switched 
from being a loyal intelligence officer supporting the ABVEZ objectives. And most of the people involved in the plot, in the plot had fine military careers, particularly in the success on the Western Front in 1940 and in Poland. But, but obviously something changed. And Hans Oster is one of those people who appears from the interrogation reports of his subordinates, appears to have been a highly efficient officer. And Oster and Canaris were executed just before the end of the war? Yes, most, most of the plotters um, were executed. A few got away with it. Wow, wow. Well, thank you so much. We could talk for another two hours, but this has been so much fun and I really appreciate speaking to you. Thank you, Andrew. It's a delight to be interviewed by somebody who knows the business. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you go to our page at thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. Coming up in next week's show. I was there between 2001 and 2006, but I'll tell you something. In Israel, once you serve in this position... That's how you are going to remember for the rest of your life. I did all kinds of things <laughs> since then, but whenever I appear on television or uh, on the radio, <laughs> when I'm interviewed, they always refer to me, the former head of the research and analysis division. <laughs> I'm your host, Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. My podcast content partner is Erin Dietrich. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Bond III, Joe Zhu, Emily Coletta, Afua Anokwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester and Jen Ivan. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.